Welcome to Houston Sports Talk with your host, Robert Land. Thanks for listening to the best Houston sports podcast. This episode sponsored by Any Lab Test Now. I'll tell you more about them in just a few minutes. And joining me, co-host Stephen Kerr and the best Rodgers and Hammerstein musical singer in our show's history, <laughs> Steve Sparks. <laughs> And man, if anybody didn't catch you singing Oklahoma for us a couple of years ago, I feel sorry for him, Sparky. I'm sorry that left such a lasting impression. I didn't mean for it to. <laughs> no, it was a very good one. You, you couldn't do an encore, could you? Uh, that's the only show tune I really know. But uh, yeah, Oklahoma is stuck in my mind forever. Yeah, that was fantastic. And, and it just right out of the shoot, I got to say, I gained a whole new respect for you when I heard on the uh, on your podcast, the Astros podcast, that you you dropped a love boat mention in for me. Uh, let let me just say that <laughs> my DVR is set to record the love boat on Me TV every single week. So this is you're right at my alley here. <laughs> is it really? You're kidding. That's great. Oh yeah. You know what? It, it's so funny. Some of those shows, you know, and the the Me Too, and some of those old show, uh, stations that show some of the old shows are a lot of fun bring back great memories of simpler times right yeah for sure i'm needing it right now for sure that's the, that's also the case right yeah sparky it sounds like you're keeping really busy though during this time off i mean you're washing your hands every few hours you're watching dr oz and, and tiger king on you yeah. on uh, netflix do you even have time to miss baseball i definitely miss baseball but uh i am staying busy you know and and I just feel, you know, it, it, you get reminded in times like this that the best way to stay content is to just to reach out and help others. Just try, try to find ways to look outside of yourself. But, man, as far as missing baseball, man, that's to the, the millionth degree right now, especially as much uh, to this season as we're looking forward to another great season with this Astros team. It seems like, you know, we can all look at this for, as fans, really, and, and look at this window of an opportunity for the Astros to be really good and go to the, the playoffs and be contenders. And the Astros are squarely right in the middle of that still. Let me start you with a million-dollar question for you. And I know that back in 95, you went through a lockout where you had to come back and pitch after a long hiatus. You guys talked about that a little bit on your show. And I believe you said it would take maybe two and a half weeks to ramp up arms once we can play baseball again. So do you think there's a, a difference physically in what's available for the guys to do today compared to what you had back then with, I guess, the virus, but also, I guess, uh, you know, what, what these guys have available technology-wise? Well, one advantage they have right now is that they, they did go through probably two-thirds of the spring training and getting ramped up to, to go to spring training. And back then, I was put on, put on the 40-man roster uh, from right after the minor league season. So I was thrust right into the the work stoppage and in 1995 uh, once they got an agreement uh, we went and had two and a half weeks of spring training and remember most of those guys were off since the previous August so it was a really long layoff so to be able to ramp up and uh, for a lot of those starting pitchers anyway they'd only gotten up to about 45 lucky if they got to 60 pitches before the season started so we carried two extra pitchers uh, on everybody's roster for the first two weeks of the season. That's actually the reason why uh, I made the roster uh, with the Milwaukee Brewers to begin that season. And if it wasn't for a couple of injuries early on in the season, I probably would have got sent back down to the minor leagues. But there were some injuries and some guys weren't really pitching well, so I got to stay. But uh, I think right now, since the, uh, the, the players got to have 
you know, somewhat of a, a spring training and, and guys are in probably better shape than we were, you know, 25 years ago that they certainly could get to their pitch count in, in two, two and a half weeks up to about 75. And that should allow you to, to get into the season and not risk injury. Well, speaking of injury, I, I mean, I, I don't know if the term silver lining is really appropriate in a situation like this, but if, if you look at one of the positives of having the the season kind of delayed a bit is it, it does give some guys like a Justin Verlander, Jordan Alvarez, mm-hmm. and some of the others a chance to heal up. And maybe when the season does start, whenever that happens, right. maybe Justin Verlander can pitch opening day or at least come back very soon after. Yeah, I think probably the most indispensable player on the Astros roster right now without Garrett Cole has to be Justin Verlander. I think he's the most important member on their entire roster because he gives you the best chance to win every fifth day, and you're going to have to rely on him to be the horse. And just like you said, I mean, we don't want to look at silver linings. The silver lining is that, you know, we all come out of this healthy and and our friends and family – are back together enjoying the game that we love, but more than anything, everybody's helped. But I, I totally agree with you with Ver, in Verlander's case. I think he's the most important member of this Astros team and to get him to be able to start day one, whenever that might be, uh, I think would be very important. Not sure you've had a chance to really gauge this, but I wanted to ask you about the MLB's decision to go just five rounds in the draft in June. And how bad do you think mm. this is for the Astros since they don't have their own first or second round pick, or could it help them? Because right. if it's a free for all after five rounds, then can you outsmart some teams for those next level players and add higher quality depth than you normally have a shot at? I, I say, and, and I'm not trying to spin this. I think this works into the Astros favor for sure. I think they're very comfortable with the way they've scouted. Uh, they've go, gone to these showcases. They go to Cape Cod, uh, you know, in scout players, in wood bat leagues and things of that nature. And, you know, after five rounds, you know, they, they'll only get three picks. Uh, we understand that. But after the, the fifth round, everybody's a free agent. So they've got the, the pick of their litter. So, you know, it's just a, a matter of, of using that, you know, that money wisely and going out there and using your resources and, and the way you evaluate players is certainly going to be different from the way that other teams do, but I think the Astros feel very good about their methods and they've proven to be very good at at, at tapping into some of these markets uh, with late rounders that have have done very well. Um, So I don't see any reason why uh, they can't capitalize on that. And I think it does work in their favor. Sparky, what's your assessment of James Click in his first two months on the job? Obviously very short time, but he didn't exactly yeah. come into a, a normal situation. I mean, you, you talk about the sign-stealing scandal to start off with. Then you add this whole coronavirus thing on top of it. I mean, his first two months have been about as <laughs> probably more right. abnormal than anybody in sports history, I would think. Yeah, and very tumultuous. Uh, you know, I, I think I mean, one nice thing for him is typically a new general manager or a new manager comes into a situation because things aren't going very well. and. Uh, that just wasn't the case. So just very odd circumstances that uh, a new general manager is in place or, and a new manager for that matter. And, and for the conversations that I've had and the interviews that I've gotten to have with James Click uh, in the early going, I've come away very impressed with how comfortable he is in his own skin. He seems very confident. Uh, he seems very vulnerable. You know, he doesn't try to come out here and say he knows everything 
but at the same time, he's going to rely uh, a lot on the people in place to try to uh, gain as much information as he can to make the best decisions he can. So he's going to have to rely on a lot of the people that have been in place, Joe Espada, Brent Strom, uh, some of the coaches, uh, Alex Central, some of the coaches that have been here, and a lot of the front office people uh, that can give him sound advice. But uh, he seems very sharp to me, early 40s, very energetic, uh, very hungry to, to do a, a great job, and I think he will. Taking you back to spring training, which seems like about you know a century ago, but did, did any of the young arms surprise you in what West Palm, and what did you see that you liked over there? Uh, I love Brian Abreu still, you know, um, Urquidy still pitching inside. I love the one player. I mean, whenever you say this, the one player that surprised me more than anybody, and, I, and part of it's because I root for him so so much and I like him so much. Uh, it's one of my favorites, and it's Chris Davinsky. I thought he looked like his old self. I think, you know, in, from what I've heard, I, I've heard that uh, he was showing uh, his pitches. Uh, he was tipping his pitches the last couple of years, and from what it looked like from uh, the way the other, the opposition were responding to, to his offerings in spring training. He was throwing his fastball in the mid-90s. His chainsaw looked great. He, he just looked like his old self again and we know him uh and fell in love with him when uh, he became an all-star and somebody very important in the Astros bullpen I think I think he can become that that guy again and that was exciting to see we need to see Peacock get back to form and, and some of those players I think the middle relievers are going to be very important for the Astros this year because of uh how they're going to have to shade some of the innings away from from uh McCullers and their Keedy and and whoever garners that fifth spot but uh uh i think they're going to be they're going to be fine you talk about silver lining i think their pitching staff was thin but uh with less games this year certainly uh that'll that'll work in their favor because their offense is going to be great do they still have confidence in force whitley do, do you think strom still has confidence in him yeah i think so you know there's there's some uh there's some work to do when you look at the stuff and you watch some of the reactions when, when he's in the zone and things of that nature in swing and miss in the zone that's a that's a great indicator of somebody's sheer stuff when you get so many swing and misses on pitches that are actual strikes man force whitley there's not many better than him and i think mentally and physically for those two things to, to meld together, you know, they're waiting on, on those to kind of come together. And, you know, you, you can listen to somebody and you can hear a little self-doubt, even as they speak to the media and they're trying to convince themselves. Uh, sometimes you can just hear the, the undercurrent when, whenever he speaks for whatever reason. I don't, I don't know if I'm looking into it too much, but uh, I feel like he's somebody that's still searching to, to gain that like real inner peace and inner confidence uh, of the type of pitcher he can become. You just have to wonder because, you know, when he first came into the organization, he was so dominant. I don't know if overconfidence would be the right word to use, but do you think sometimes pitchers can maybe get a little too comfortable in their own skin, when, especially when they go through the minor leagues and kind of blow through? And then as the competition right. gets tougher, they suddenly find out, wait, this isn't this isn't to be, it's quite as easy as I thought it would be. Do you think that may be somewhat the case with Whitley in his current situation? I think so. You know, in somebody that uh, has never really struggled until this point, and 
I certainly was never that, that type of pitcher, but I certainly saw a lot of pitchers as I was going through the minor leagues for such a long time of, of pitchers who experienced failure for the first time at the double A AA or triple A level uh, can be a shock to the system. And some guys can really, you know, work their way out of that, uh, understand that sometimes maybe less is more or not try to overthrow and, and things of that nature. And, uh, and he's got all the tools in the world to be a number one starter. He really does. I mean, this, the stuff that Forrest Whitley can throw out there on an everyday basis is impressive. The only thing for me, uh, when you watch the, the physical talent of Forrest Whitley is whether or not he can stay healthy, but you, you can say that about any pitcher coming up to the minor leagues. For me, it's going to be about the, the mental approach and being able to, being able to relax and, and kind of not succumb to the pressure that comes along with expectations, which makes things very difficult for high rounders sometimes. You had Tommy John surgery back in 97. What's the difference between what you went through back then and what Lance McCullers had to go through? You know, the protocol was in place back then, believe it or not. And I followed it to the letter. I started my rehab process uh, in Arizona and and a lot of pitchers had already gone through it. And and I followed it to the letter. And I I was back on the, on a major league mound one year to the, the date after my surgery. So For me, it was a little less time at that point. It was usually a 14 to 16 month recovery for most pitchers, but because I wasn't relying on velocity and I threw the knuckleball, uh, it was a little quicker, but I think for Lance, uh, you know, and pitchers that are going through this now, it's about kind of learning how to, to gain your flexibility and your strength back simultaneously, which is, uh, is an art in itself. So you rely a lot on the, the, the trainers and the, the therapists uh, to do their job and, and keep the the scar tissue out of there so, so you can keep going in a forward trajectory. And I'll tell you one thing about Lance McCullers. If, that, if you guys are talking about Lance, man, I don't think there's anybody that's going to be as diligent as Lance uh, as far as getting after uh, a rehab and coming back at full strength. And when I watch him play the long toss and I watched him in spring training, uh, see a little bit of an overhaul in the mechanics and see how smooth and, and how efficient his delivery is now. I can't, I can't help but be extremely excited about what the rest of his career uh, holds because I, I, we all know, I mean, there was times that, I mean, he was pitching to get some of the best hitters in the world and making them look silly. And uh, it, uh, healthy Lance McCullers, a, a more efficient, uh, delivery, being able to throw three pitches at any time in, in the count. Um, man, I, the sky's the limit for Lance McCullers Jr. I, I can't wait to see him pitch uh, with full strength, full health uh, with these mechanics in place now. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I've always observed it. It seems to take a pitcher a full season you know, to, to really feel comfortable back in, in true form. But like you said, if, if anybody could come back stronger sooner than that, mm-hmm. it would be Lance McCullers Jr. And, and boy, the Astros could certainly use that. I think there's a lot of people that are counting on him to at least help soak up some of the innings lost by Garrett Cole and some of the others. So if anybody could, Lance certainly could. You're right. 
Yeah, and I don't think it's far-fetched to, that the, this team can't lean on him. I think he's the type of pitcher, he, he, you know, and it's almost unfair to say after being out for a year and a half, to say that you you need to lean on Lance, but I think you can. I mean, I think he's that good. I think he's that special that you can lean on him right away uh, as he comes back to, to really provide that one, two, three punch along with Grinky and Verlander. The Astros lost a, a legend, and I want to – Get your thoughts on him in just a bit. But before we go on, I just want to remind everybody about any lab test now. And if you're wondering how can they help you, well, here is how. Any lab test now provides direct access lab testing that makes it easier for individuals to maintain a healthy lifestyle. Now, what does direct access mean? Very simply, it means you can just walk into any of their 15 Houston area locations, select which lab test you want completed, and you're in and out as little as 15 minutes. They can provide the doctor's order, or accept your physician's order. So if you're uninsured or have a high deductible insurance and are trying to manage your healthcare budget, take advantage of their many lab testing options. And also they take HSA and FSA cards. Most results ready in one to three business days and can be sent directly to your email, giving you the information you need to take control of your healthcare. Check out their website, anylabtestnow.com. That's www.anylabtestnow.com. And I can tell you how quick and convenient it is from personal experience. I've had tons of experience getting lab work done and just, it, it just couldn't have been easier there. It, it, not, you're not going to find an easier in and out process than any lab test now. And, That's great to hear. Yeah. I, I love <laughs> to hear that. Well, we, I want to ask you about your medical stuff uh, a little bit later on, but before we get to that, uh, Jimmy Wynn a couple days ago, we had a chance to talk to former Astros broadcaster, Greg Lucas. He shared some, some wonderful memories of Jimmy Wynn. How, how well did you get to know the toy cannon? I got to know him pretty well, you know, and, and I've become pretty involved with the Grand Slam for youth baseball and the scholarships they provided for a lot of high school kids to go to college uh, throughout the years. And Jimmy was very active in that and actually sponsored a, a scholarship for uh, one of the recipients every year. And just knowing how many thousands of visits he made in the community and how active he was after an 11 year Astros and Colt 45's career and, and play four more years with some other teams. But I mean, just what a, a, a true hero in this community. Uh, I really looked up to him and you're talking about somebody who was content with their life and content with uh, reaching out uh, in the community and, and helping others. That was Jimmy Wynn. I, I'll miss him. Yeah. I, my biggest impression of Jimmy Wynn now, as opposed to, I, I did get to see him play the last couple of years. He was with the Astros in the early seventies before they traded him to the Dodgers. But what what I've found out over the last few years is just how he became such a great representative of the Astros and made himself available. Right. You know, even when his health was, his health had been declining for years, but he still yeah. was very much involved with the club. You know what? I really, I mean, I don't think there's anybody that's been more active than Jimmy throughout all these years. I mean, Larry Durker certainly has, there's been, there's been uh, a handful of former uh, Astros and Colt 45s, but I think Jimmy Wynn stands at the top as somebody who's gotten out and made a difference more than any of them. And uh, I think uh, that the lives that he's impacted will last uh, a lifetime. And, uh, uh, we're all lucky to to just uh, have known him in, in our hearts and prayers go out to his wife, Marie, and uh, the rest of his family because uh, he's going to be missed, 78 years old, but uh, he lived a very, very full life. 
Yeah, he's, he's just fantastic. I mean, I, I loved getting a chance to talk to him. Just I feel lucky that I that I got that chance. Yeah, what a nickname, right? What a great nickname. The the best in, in Astros history, right? I think so. You know, it's yeah, one of the too. best I've ever heard. When you think of uh, everything that uh, uh, represented Jimmy Wynn was, was the power, the the great arm, and everything in the uh, the size. When you put it together and saying toy cannon, I mean, it just fit him perfectly. Let me ask you this, Steve, because there, there's I don't know if you caught this on Twitter in the last few days, but uh, Evan Gaddis uh, had a had a quote which I thought was real interesting. He said, "For the record." Uh, quote, I have zero bad feelings towards Mike Fires. We have actually texted, mm. and I hope he didn't get too much hate mail and threats. He was our teammate, unquote. And and I just, I, as the Mike Fires thing unfolded, and, and I had a chance to talk to Mike, you know, just really great guy. Just, I, I thought he was uh, one of the nicer guys in the clubhouse. And, and I wanted to ask you, Steve, because you've been a pitcher. You might have a unique angle on baseball's, I guess, quote unquote, unwritten rules about what you should and shouldn't say and, and you know, how, how to do things once you once you leave a certain yeah. team. How, how do you see the anger that has been directed towards fires by Astros fans? And I don't mean the death threats or anything like that, but should fans or his former teammates be upset with him about what he said? Yeah, you know, it's, it's a tough question. So, you know, it, it's really hard sometimes to understand what people's motives were and what their intentions were. And I guess that, that not many people were ever really understand what maybe Mike's intentions or, or motives were. And if they're pure, then, then I get it. And there's no reason for me uh, to believe that they, they weren't, uh, they weren't pure, you, you know, and, and for him to say that, you know, it was hard for him to, to see maybe a team take advantage of, of young players, trying to make a name for themselves in their, in the game uh, that he just wanted to call attention to it. So I'll, I'll take him at face value. And there's no reason for me uh, with the dealings that I had with him on one-on-one, one-on-one basis to believe otherwise, because he was all, always vulnerable. Uh, he was always honest with me and, and gracious uh, to do interviews and, and, and to kind of lay it out there. So um, I don't have ill feelings, you know, and I don't, you know, I, and I certainly understand that people are passionate about their team and, and the way things have turned out. It's certainly disappointing, but uh, I'll just kind of leave it at that. You know, I, I, I'm not going to hold a grudge, you know, in, especially in times like this uh, when there's so many more things that are more important uh, than I'll rest my, rest my laurels on, on trying to stay healthy and, and, uh, take care of my own family, right? Yeah, exactly. Are, are you surprised that the, the voice or I guess the spokesman, as far as the players are concerned, lately has actually been Carlos Correa? I would have thought someone like, uh, oh, Alex Bregman or maybe Justin Verlander might have been kind of the, the face of this whole thing once the players started talking. Well, I, I'm not surprised that it, it's, it's Carlos because he is so eloquent and well-spoken uh, and smart and uh, – I just think he says the right thing at the right time, you know, and, and that, that goes a long way. Not to say that the other guys you mentioned uh, could not or would not do the same, but I've always felt like Carlos has had that demeanor and uh, a very nice calm about him. So I, I'm not surprised. And I'm, I'm anxious to read Chandler Rome's got a, an article. Did it come out this morning? Yeah, it was today. Uh, about Carlos. Or Sunday. Okay, yeah, yeah, I'm anxious to read that. I haven't read that yet. So, 
I'm anxious to read that. Chan- I'm a big fan of Chandler anyway, and th- to see what he wrote about Carlos. I'm anxious to read that. I'm a big fan of Carlos Correa uh, as well. I think this team is uh, a million times better when he's in it. And I think the world uh, of him uh, as a person, and I love his talent. And uh, I think he's a good spokesman. I think he's a perfect spokesman for this team during a tough period. The big revelation in that piece to me was the fact that Correa has stopped eating sugar. And Steve, I've stopped eating <laughs> yeah, sugar. Wow. And, and, and I, I tell people it's not a bad idea. And it, it's something I think a lot more of us should think about. I mean, I, you get, I get my sugar out of fruit. And it's great, and I love it. Mm. And I don't miss, you know. After a while, you just don't miss it. You don't, you don't really miss. And and you and you t- and you have like a piece of cake or a, a cookie or something like that. And you go, oh my god, this is way too much. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I, you know, I went through probably I went through a twenty year period where I never had a soft drink when when I was playing ball, and you never even think about it once you you just kind of stop something and. Uh, right now I, I haven't had red meat in three or four months. Um, it, you know, you, you learn certain things about things and, and you have to make decisions of what's best for your lifestyle at, at a particular time. And I, I think when you make that commitment, you don't miss it. And then once it becomes a habit, once, once things have, have taken place for maybe three or four weeks, it become habits. And then you don't really, you don't think about it as much, which is, which is the best thing. So, uh, wow, sugar, that's a big one though, right? And you guys uh, have learned that, uh, you know, there's substitutes and when you can have an apple or, or a blackberry or something like that uh, for a substitute, it's more natural than uh, it makes you feel better, not only mentally, but physically. How are you feeling? And, 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 and tell us like, can you explain what, what it felt like, what happened to you? What do you remember about that? Uh, well, I don't remember a whole lot. So, I mean, it, it, if people don't know, I had a heart attack in December and it was a massive heart attack. And my wife had gotten me to the hospital less than a minute before I had the heart attack. And what I do remember was that it felt like curtains were closing, curtains were coming down and I kind of ducked underneath and I was trying to get her attention as she was trying to get somebody's attention to help me. Uh, telling her that I was going down. That's the last thing I remembered. And uh, I had 99% blockage in the, in the Widowmaker artery. Um, and I died three times. Um, they brought me back to life and I've been on the road to, to recovery since then. So changed some things. There, there wasn't any problems with my blood pressure or cholesterol or anything. No symptoms uh, leading up to it, shortness of breath, anything like that. It was just family history that I wasn't really well aware of that I had in my family that I didn't know the extent of it. So uh, very fortunate that I'm here. But, yeah, I, I've made some changes. You know, I've, it's, They told me, you know, red meat causes a lot of inflammation in your body. It restricts blood cells. So I stopped that and, uh, uh, you know, fried foods and desserts basically for the most part. So uh, I'm eating a lot better. Uh, I'm doing cardio for 45 minutes, six days a week. And, uh, I'm feeling great, you know, and, uh, I'm fortunate right now that I've got the time to do all that stuff and do things right. I was worried going to spring training. It's kind of funny, uh, because, uh, we were staying in a, in a hotel on how I was going to be able to do dietary wise, but, uh, it worked out fine. I figured it out and have less trepidation going into a, a season knowing that, uh, I can stay pretty healthy throughout the season and do things the right way. 
Well, we're certainly glad you're here too, Sparky, and that you came through it all right. I, I was going, yeah, yeah, I was going to ask you if it was a hereditary situation. That uh, I know there are tests yeah, for that, but most people don't realize it until, well, until it's too late in some cases. So for you, it's yeah, very fortunate. You, know that- you, were, uh, you were talking about the lab test, and I've got to say this: there's uh, there's one thing that uh, you know, if you're listening, somebody's listening, and they're hearing this, and they want to get a test done. And it's the test to see what your calcium score is. That's one thing that I think if I would have been doing, uh, I think if your insurance doesn't cover it, it costs 100 bucks. But uh, if you get your calcium score, you can see how much calcium is in your bloodstream to, that would cause plaque to clog your arteries. And if your your score is zero, then you're in pretty good shape. So uh, it's it's good peace of mind, and it's also you know might be a, a little warning to you if you've got uh, a score that might need some some attention. That's good to know. And uh, I want to ask you this because, you know, as a player, you you didn't cross paths much with Dusty Baker as a manager because you guys were usually in opposite leagues, but did you have an idea of of how he was perceived by the guys that played for him when you were a player? I've got to say this. So I've always known that the the guys that played for him loved him. And there was a, there's a situation this spring training. We were in Jupiter, which is on the Atlantic ocean side of, of Florida. And there was two of his ex-players from the San Francisco Giants, and it was Robbie Thompson and Kurt Mann wearing a couple of players that he had that lived on the other side of the state, so probably three or four hours away. And they came over to the game just to kind of support Dusty and to say hey and see if they could lend a, a helping hand and offer some encouragement to some of the Astros players. And I just thought, man, that tells me all I need to know about Dusty. And I kind of got the sense already in the few weeks that I got into chance to, to have some extended conversations with him, but man, that told me a lot about him and his former players coming back to support him anyway. Uh, he's just a very genuine man. He's very caring. He's very thoughtful, very smart. And he's somebody you can learn from. He's fun to be around, you know, he's somebody that's, that uh, attracts people toward him because of uh, the words he speaks. I thought it was great, man. We had him on Astral Line one night uh, in spring training. And I remember one story. I think Hank Aaron, his teammate with the Atlanta Braves, was 16 years or 18 years his senior. And Dusty Baker was a 19-year-old rookie in the big leagues. And, you know, times were different. And racism wasn't pretty in that part of the country for sure. And Hank Aaron told Dusty's mom, that I will take care of your son. Don't worry about a thing. I'll take care of him like he's my brother. And mm-hmm. I, I think Dusty's kind of treated people like that ever since then. I mean, I think he's appreciated people that have crossed paths with him throughout his life. And I think he tries to pass it along. And he's, I think he's the perfect guy for this team right now. Yeah, I, I know that, you know, the big question when he was hired is, is he the right guy to lead the team through the situation that they're in. And I would say he's done a, a really good job just, just handling all the pressure of that, you know, and obviously the short time that he's been able to do that. He just seems to be the steadying hand that the club has needed through this whole ordeal. Yeah, he's just re- he's just a, a cool guy, you know, and he's got a ton of credibility. So I think anybody that kind of comes at him really tiptoes because you don't want to, you don't want to anger him and not for fear, but just out of respect. And I think he gives this Astros team a little boost of respect when they need it. You know, I was going through your career and it never occurred to me 
but most of your career, you were playing with former Astros managers. You start off in Milwaukee with Garner. Then you go to the Angels and you play for Terry Collins, then to Detroit oh, then yeah. with Garner again. I mean, uh, can, can you give us your best scrap iron story? Oh, my gosh. I'll tell you one that, that kind of that I laugh at. It just kind of epitomizes him. And this, this happened probably about 12 or 13 years ago. And I remember I was just in my car and I get a phone call and Phil Garner had just come out of a, a movie theater and he had seen Moneyball. And there was a particular scene in that movie where there was a player who was on the bubble. They were trying to think of two different players that might make the team. And they were talking about one particular player. And one of the scouts at the table said, have you seen his wife? And they go, no, why? He said, well, she's, she's ugly. She's ugly. She's kind of big. I just don't think he has confidence. How can a big league ball player not have a pretty wife? So they took the other guy because he had a, a really pretty wife. And Garner had to call me after this stupid movie, he said, because that was the exact reason why I made my first roster with the Milwaukee Brewers, because my wife was hot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it awesome. Like a little league, like one of the little league dads drafting players because the mom was hot, right? <laughs> oh, goodness. Um, what, what, what do you remember about Collins? What do you remember about playing for him? He was hilarious. He was he was tightly wound. We, we had a really good team uh, with the Angels uh, when I was there. And unfortunately, things unraveled with Terry, and he ended up quitting with a month left in the, in the season just because he realized that he had, he had lost, you know, kind of the respect of the, of the clubhouse. And Joe Madden, who was uh, his bench coach, ended up taking over. He was our interim manager for the last month. I'll tell you what, Terry Collins, for me, and and I had a lot of conversations with him later when he was with the Mets, when I was doing pre- and post-game stuff with the Astros, and having really nice conversations. But he treated me like gold. He he took care of me, and I really respected him, uh, the way he took care of his starting pitchers. He didn't leave them out there to die, and and he would uh, really pay attention to that part of the game, which I think is, is probably the most important part of a, of a manager's job is, is to run a bullpen and to run a pitching staff. And it's the hardest one to do as well. And I thought he did it pretty darn well. I've got a couple of like Steve Sparks random questions for you that would this kind of would fit right in with uh, the stuff that you like to ask. But I know Brad Ausmus was your catcher when you played in Detroit. Yeah. Uh, were there any Bull Durham type conversations out on the mound with Ausmus or any of your catchers? You know what Brad did one time? He came out to the mound and he thought he was Alex Trebek. You know, Brad uh, was smarter than anybody. We all know he was an Ivy Leaguer, went to Dartmouth and and all this stuff. And he was tremendously witty and smart and sarcastic at the same time. And I remember him coming out to the mound one time and asking me, who was America named after? (laughs) And oh, he, he was totally, he was totally trying to take my mind off. And I said, America's Vespucci. He said, you're wrong. It's Amerigo. I said, I'll bet you 20 bucks. It's America's Vespucci. And sure enough, he won. So it was Amerigo Vespucci. And that was the question he asked me during the game at Fenway Park in the middle of a probably fifth or sixth inning sometime. Uh, you grew up in Oklahoma. I'm wondering when and where was your first major league game that you saw in person? It was at Municipal Stadium in downtown Kansas City before Kauffman Stadium was built. They had an older stadium, and it was a twilight doubleheader. 
that I got a chance to see the Cleveland Indians and their catcher was Ray Fossey against the Kansas City Royals in a doubleheader. And it was probably 1970 or 1971. And it was really close. I, I don't know if you guys are real familiar with Pete Rose's collision with Ray Fossey. Sure. That really yeah, changed yeah. the course. It changed the course of Ray Fossey's career. It happened in an all-star game. And there's a lot of controversy that Rose may have gone out of his way to, to hurt Fossey. And Fossey's never really kind of let go of it. He's one of the broadcasters with the Oakland A's that we see all the time during the course of the year. But Ray Fossey was the catcher, and, and I remember as a little kid just thinking, man, how big his legs were. And like a lot of people, uh, you know, walking into a major league stadium for the first time, you just couldn't believe how grand everything looked and how colorful. You know, I was talking to a guy uh, on the minor league side of our complex just uh, a month or so ago, and he had a Valley Cat polo shirt on, and I asked him if he was with the Tri-City affiliated with the Tri-City team, the, the Astros rookie league team, he said, yeah, he was the team photographer. And we got to talk him for a little bit. He said the first game he ever went to was at Ebbets Field. And I think it was 1956 or 1957, he said it was. And he was nine years old and had a cheap camera, and he was taking pictures. And he was telling me when he went in there, it's the first time he'd seen anything other than black and white because TV was black and white. Uh, the pictures in the, t- in the newspapers were black and white. And he was showing me these pictures as he was telling me the story. And it was the, the picture of people in the stands and the, the, the men at the game had the suits on with the, with the nice looking caps to go with and they had neckties and, and the, the ladies were in dresses and, and it just looked so old school, looked so cool. And he was telling me about, you know, different parts of the stadium. And he said, my dad and I finally worked our way to the, the first base side by the Dodgers dugout and my dad told me to hop over the railing. Uh, he said, no, he said, first, he said, hand me your camera. He said, dad, I'm doing a good job. He said, hand me your camera. And it was kind of stern and his dad usually wasn't that stern. So he gave his dad the camera. Then his dad told him to hop over the railing. He said, dad, I'll get in trouble. He said, don't kick us out of this game. He said, get over the railing. So he said, and when you go over the railing, see that guy coming down the right field line, I want you to tap him on the shoulder, get his attention and, and, and ask him if he'll take a picture with you. So he did what his dad told him. He hopped over the railing, tapped the guy on the shoulder, and the guy turned around, and he said, I'd be, I'd be happy to take a picture with you, son. And he remembers leaning against this guy, and he said he remembered the guy felt like a boulder, like a rock. He was so solid and strong, and he showed me that picture. He, this man told, showed me the picture that his dad took, and it was him and Jackie Robinson. Wow. How about that? How cool was that? Yeah, it was yeah. really cool. Wow. So – He's gone on and been the team photographer with the New York Mets. And, and since then, uh, we've exchanged emails. And uh, he sent me a lot of pictures of the Miracle Mets in 69 and Seaver and Kuzman and, and Nolan Ryan and all these guys uh, back in those days and through the years. Uh, he was a cool guy. It's just, a, a, you know, you, you hear about different experiences of people going to the first major league games. And I thought that guy, man, he's got one to top a lot of people's forever. You, you heard about uh, Aspermani. He he was uh, his first major league game uh, was with the Brooklyn Dodgers, and, and Jackie Robinson gave him his glove. Oh my gosh, I had no idea. That's so good. Mm. Hey, did you guys see Astros Daily? You, are you guys familiar with that website? Yeah, yeah. So there was a picture that Astros Daily put out there uh, of Biggio with Jimmy Wynn when Biggio was ten years old. Did you see that? 
I did not. No. Who was he with then? Who was Jimmy with at that time? You know what? I know he played with the Brewers and the Dodgers and Yankees, so I'm not exactly sure, but Craig was 10 years old and he took a picture with Jimmy. I can't remember what uniform Jimmy was wearing, but I, but my gosh, how did they come up with that picture? Bizio had to have that. But Astros Daily is one of my favorite websites because you can you can filter in through so many different arenas to to try to prep for games, and uh, they've got it all lined out. He does a great job. Sparky, at what point did you decide that broadcasting was the direction you wanted to go after playing? Was there a defining moment, or did you just kind of fall into it? I just fell into it. My wife met uh, Bill Brown's wife at a charity golf tournament, and she said that they were looking for people for pre- and post-game show on TV, uh, you know, to do a few games. So got the number of the executive producer for, I think, Fox at the time. It's Murphy Brown, who's still with the Astros or with AT&T Sportsnet and had lunch with him at uh, Lupe Tortilla one afternoon. And I think it was the next night I was I was doing the pre and post game show for seven years before and after Astros games. And it, the timing was was perfect for them because my kids were still in school and uh, travel did not seem like anything I wanted to do. And when you do the pre and post game shows when the team's on the road, you're doing it at a studio. So that worked out really well for me. And when Milo retired after the 2012 season, they were looking for uh, some people to interview. They asked me to interview for that job. And it was almost perfect timing. uh, As far as my family went, then Uh, went ahead and took that leap. And uh, they offered me the job to be the analyst. The funny thing about that was was just a couple of weeks before the season started, in 2013 when they when they hired Robert and myself but uh it was just two days before spring training started that they, that they said that uh hey by the way you're going to do a couple of uh play-by-play innings uh every game as well I thought oh my gosh I am not I'm not ready for this and I wasn't man but uh, uh still probably not but I remember those first couple of seasons I was I was pretty grateful that not many people were listening to those broadcasts <laughs> Well, you know, I, I was in broadcasting for many years myself, and it, it's not easy to strike that balance between humor and, and a more laid-back approach. But I, I feel, you know, I've listened to you from the beginning. I just feel that as each season has gone along, you've gained that confidence, and, and you've been able to strike that balance. I mean, on one hand, you're, you're a calm presence in the booth, but then you, you can get a little goofy. And then, of course, there is your legendary post-season, post-game clubhouse celebrations that probably, you know, they probably should have a corner of that in Cooperstown for you, Sparky. I'm not kidding. <laughs> well, I don't know what happens down there. You know, and a lot of people think I'm inebriated. I'm not, you know, I'm having a good time. I might have, you know, I might nurse a beer, you know, as things go along or take a chug of the champagne, but I'm just having a good time. And I'm excited for these guys that I've really come to just, you know, just get close to, and I've become a fan. You know what the hardest thing for me broadcasting-wise was? And Milo, you know, I would I would call Milo about every other day on my way home from a ball game, and he was encouraging me to push my enthusiasm. The hardest part was as a player and as a pitcher, say if you give up a home run, you get trained for, for, for whatever reason. To be, a, to be a, a consistent athlete, you have to really train your heart to, to slow down when things go the wrong way. So when I give up a, a home run, it was almost instead of my heart rate racing, it would go the other direction because I just trained myself to go that way. And it was hard for me to get it or show excitement for 
something something that one of the Astros players did because my heart rate just wouldn't allow me to go there until I just finally started to let it go. And it took me a couple of years to become a fan again, just to, just to watch the game like you guys watch it and, and become a fan and, and just live, live through the microphone that way. Did one of your big league managers ever ask you to bean a guy or does it defeat the purpose to hit somebody with a knuckleball? Okay, so talking about Terry Collins, so I was with the Angels one season. I think it was 1999, and we had a four-game series with the Seattle Mariners. And a lot of the players on our team were getting upset, or even even earlier before that series, that nobody was protecting them. They were getting hit, and nobody was protecting or throwing inside or anything like that. So it came to the fourth game of the series, and it was a Sunday night baseball game. We were the we were the game on Sunday night baseball, and I was pitching against the Mariners. Fourth game of that series, and they had already hit six of our guys in the first three games of that series, and our guys were fuming. And I heard them in the dugout, you know, in the first three games, and I was wondering why our our pitchers weren't taking care of it as well. So there's a situation that came about in the second or third inning. It's probably the third inning. And I had a runner on second base. The base open was first base. And I had Ken Griffey Jr. at the plate. And I threw a fastball and I hit him in the rear end. You know, I just decided I was going to, I was going to make a statement. And sure enough, it caused a commotion. Ken Griffey Jr. took his bat and was pointing it at Terry Collins in our dugout saying, you know, and uh, it started, you know, both teams kind of jawing at each other in the next inning, they get another one of our players, Todd green, and he charges them out. And there's, there's a big commotion. There's a big brawl, you know, in the middle of the field. And I was kind of in the middle of all that just because I was trying to protect our players. Was I trying to hurt him? Absolutely not. I loved him. It was just something I felt like I had to do uh, for my teammates. Was there two or three hitters that you were scared to face? You know, there was a couple of players. I remember, Dave Winfield in particular, I mean, thinking he was so far off the plate, you felt like anything on the outer third of the plate, he wasn't going to be able to reach. And if I fell behind, I needed to throw a fastball on the outer third. There was no way. And I remember the first time that I faced him, that I threw a fastball at some point in the count on the outer third, thinking that I, I just dotted it right where I wanted to. And he hit one. And it was by my ear. I heard it go by my ear, you know, in the blink of an eye. And I never saw it really. And that's what I remember. Oh my gosh, his arms are so long. He was huge in the box. Frank Thomas is one of those guys that was very imposing uh, of the players that I faced. Ken Griffey Jr. Uh, of course was, was massive. Mo Vaughn uh, was a big presence and ended up being a teammate of mine uh, with the Angels. But when he was with the Red Sox, he was a beast. And the other guy who people don't talk about enough was Albert Bell, one of the best right-handed hitters that I've ever seen. And he could set up pitchers with the best of them. Extremely smart, but mean and tough. Just an RBI machine. He had a temper. He had a little bit of a temper. Oh, big time temper. Yeah. You know, you you could hear him breaking stuff in in the dugout, you know, when he made it out. Uh, Same way with like Kurt Gibson. You could hear guys. Uh, Paul O'Neill, you know, guys screaming at you all the way down the first baseline. That was stuff that you kind of miss. That, that was fun stuff. That playing against some of the best players at, at old Yankee Stadium, stuff like that. I'll never forget. That was that was a dream come true. 
Sparky, I want to ask you about the state of baseball currently. There is a push to try to make the game shorter and make some changes. Do you think Major League Baseball maybe is trying too hard to to change the game as it is? I mean, it's never going to be football. It's not a fast-paced game like basketball or hockey. I mean, is there maybe too strong a push to alter the game? You know, there's probably has to be a balance there. You know, I certainly think that the the players are better than ever. And you, you wonder if if the uh, attention the younger fans coming up can, can put up uh, with the length of the games and the lack of action. And one thing that Rob Manfred, uh, the commissioner, when he spoke to the media a few days ago, there was one word that caught my, my eye more than anything else is when he said experiment, that we may have a chance to experiment this year with the shortened schedule. And for me, I'm thinking that they're going to try some stuff. And, and I don't know really what that, that might be or what that could be, but I, you have to think with all the, the mentions that they've had in the last few years about pace of play, that they're going to try a couple of things to try to quicken things uh, during the course of these games. Now it, it may have something to do with maybe like, you know, when the minor leagues have a double header, it's two seven inning games. I think that would make perfect sense for the major leagues to do if they're going to have double headers when, when play resumes and things like that. But I'm interested to uh, see what they might try to put out there in that experimental phase. MLB Network's running those uh, reruns of old games, and I caught uh, with a friend of mine. I was over at, at his place. Uh, we maybe the two of us maybe weren't so social distancing each other, but it was a, it's a buddy of mine. And so I, you know, we just we were watching this game with Mark the Bird Fidricks back back in '76, uh, mm. and yeah, I'm watching as I'm watching the game. I said, I said, watch this. And, and, and he gets the ball, Fidrich gets the ball, and I go, 1,001, 1,002, 1,003. I couldn't even get to 1,008, and the ball was gone, Steve. Why can't we have a, a baseball clock? I mean, it's ridiculous how, how long these guys are doing between pitches these days. Well, number one, the, the paranoia that set in with uh, sign stealing made guys uh, use multiple signs with nobody on base. I started to notice that in the last few years, so – Maybe uh, with things changed in that realm, things will speed up. But, yeah, I'm with you. I mean, and, and I'm not tooting my horn, but it, if you look at a lot of the games that I pitched, there was a lot of two hours and 15-minute games. I was ready to throw the ball as soon as I got the sign. I don't know what guys are, are waiting around for. And I kind of think about it, you know, I don't know if you guys golf at all, but there's sometimes you play golf with people who take – three or four practice swings or take their time in between shots. And they have no idea that they're going through this series of, uh, of whatever they are uh, in their routine. They have no idea. And I think that it's the same thing with pitchers and sometimes hitters getting back into the box. They have no idea how long it takes them to get ready to put the ball in play. And I think if you, you put people on notice, you know, I'm, I'm not uh, adverse at all to that, that pitch clock. And if they can enforce that, I like that. I, less time in between pitches, I think, is all you need. Well, I thought the whole thing with the, what happened with the Astros and what's going on with the Red Sox and, you know, all of this stuff with uh, sign stealing, it, it seems like this is the perfect time to implement uh, some sort of technology where you, you wouldn't have to deal with the stupid 
guys putting down fingers. Can we, you know, NFL for years has had a deal where you could talk to somebody. Now, I understand it would be difficult right. for a catcher and a pitcher. But, you know, my idea, Steve, and I don't know what, what you've thought about this, but, you know, if a, if a catcher had a little device, you know, that was on the inside of his thigh, just like his, you know, just like he would do normally, but on the device, he could just, you know, hit, you know, a number for the pitch and a, a number, you know, for wh- where, where on the plate that he wanted it. And it, and the pitcher looked at it and bingo, you know, you're off and moving and we don't have to worry about, you know, taking all this time with, with sign stealing and the concerns about that. You know, and Verlander was talking about this a couple of years ago too. You know, if you had the Bluetooth capabilities and you could talk in code, which uh, would make things work a lot quicker. You know, I was talking to Larry Durker about this, and I had been thinking about this previously as well. But, you know, years ago, uh, the catcher could give a sign, and uh, a pitcher would use swipes above his belt or below his belt, which would subtract or add to whatever sign that you'd give. And then you're off and running, and and you throw your pitch. And it's impossible to decipher or put things together if if a guy's using swipes above and below his belt. Uh, once he gets the sign. And I don't know why they got away from that. It seems like the perfect uh, solution to what uh, they've they've struggled with the last few years as far as sign stealing. I don't think it's possible if a pitcher's doing things that quickly and getting ready to throw their pitch as soon as they swipe. Last thing I had for you, and I, I, if Stephen, if you want to follow up with one last thing, but my last deal was people are trapped at home right now, Sparky. What are the three best baseball movies to see? Uh, three, well, Sandlot's the best one for me. And that has a lot of meaning for me just because my son probably watched it a thousand times going to sleep uh, as, a, as a kid. And we'd watch that all the time. So Sandlot, I loved. I thought it was brilliant, you know, the way they put that together. It just evokes so many cool memories. You know, there's a, there's a movie, and it's really probably corny trying to watch it these days. But I would just remember whenever I was a kid and we got the TV guide, I always looked to see if this movie was going to be playing. And I love this movie and it ended up being a Broadway show. And I saw Jerry Lewis play the devil uh, in this, but it was called Damn Yankees. And I love that as a kid. And uh, I'll probably at some point in the next few weeks try to see if I can find that on YouTube or somewhere. But it's called Damn Yankees with Ray Walston, who ended up being Mr. Hand in fast times at Ridgemont high, nice, he was yeah. the devil, uh, a guy named tab hunter. This, this movie was in the fifties. So I'm sure the production is probably not as what it cracked out to be when I was a kid, but I really look forward to seeing that, uh, you know, the handful of times I got to see that as a kid, just a baseball movie anyway, went a long way. But, uh, the other one, man, I love, uh, a league of their own, uh, so if that's three bull Durham, when I saw that in 1988, I was a minor leaguer. It, it was spot on with, uh, the stuff that we were going through. What's the one with Kevin Costner and Kelly Preston for the love of the game. Yeah. There's, there's some of those clips from that movie and they're showing from, uh, a, a blimp. And there's a couple of people that have told me throughout the years that they really feel like Kevin Costner's character, uh, with the tigers in those clips in that movie, when they showed the, the, the stuff from the blimp or the, the helicopter, wherever they're making those shots from is me pitching with the tigers in those games. Wow. That's, that's crazy. Uh, what about, I mean, I, I always talk about this and I guess people think it's, it's maybe a generational thing and it wouldn't work these days. 
and and it's not the most PC movie, and I get it, but the original Bad News Bears, come on, man, that's a great film. Oh, I loved it. Oh man, that was the best. When I was a kid, and and it, when you got to hear kids cuss for the first time, that was <laughs> yeah. there was nothing better. Tanner, I mean, the the, the tantrums that the shortstop would would uh, pull off during that. I'm with you, man. Bad News Bears, especially. Uh, when we were kids, getting to, to watch that movie was was awesome. That, that's one of my favorites too. That's a good call. I think mine was the rookie. Mine, mine was the rookie for sure. That's a great one. Yeah, there's, there's so many good ones. That's what's fun. I mean, you know, when people put together their list, it's hard to knock. You know, I, there's not many uh, movies about baseball. Maybe Major League Two, I didn't really love, but even Major League One, I was in the Midwest League at the time. And our uh, minor league pitching coordinator had just resigned from that job to take a part in that movie. And mm. he was the first baseman for the Yankees. He played uh, Haywood in that movie. It was Pete Bukovich, former Cy Young Award winner. And he played Haywood in Major League. He was the first baseman in those movies. And he invited us on an off day from the Midwest League in Beloit, Wisconsin, to come up to Milwaukee, where they actually shot that, that movie. And uh, we got to watch filming one day during an off day. Got to play catch with Charlie Sheen, talk with Tom Berger, uh, uh, talk with the umpires who, who played in that movie. And uh, that was a blast. We had a great time. Let me ask you this. When you're, when you're talking to the girls in the minor leagues, Steve, you, you know, for, I just think you have the, one of the great names in all of sports, Steve Sparks. Did you ever go to one of the girls, hey, do you feel the sparks here? Because I feel it. <laughs> uh, I, I remember my my probably my best line is uh you ever feel a little sparky <laughs> a little sparky <laughs> and it never usually never usually worked out well no we we had a we had a great time man minor leagues were great hey listen to that i got a minor league story that's kind of crazy i told somebody the other day and i'd kind of forgotten about this story but it was the reason why you kind of kept uh, some people at arm's distance because they wanted to get so close to the players for some reason, and they felt a real connection. And there was one player that I played with in Stockton, California, the Stockton Ports, who lived with a family, and this family got close to him. And at some point, some of the other season ticket holders uh, became friendly with him or whatever, and he went to have dinner at this other family's house. And his host family got so jealous that they burned their house down. Holy cow. Oh my goodness. It, is that ridiculous? Oh. Is that amazing? Oh my goodness. Wow. <laughs> I've heard it all now. Intense, <laughs> that's how intense that got. Oh geez. So you, you never know. You know what? I mean, you go through the minor leagues and I spent 10 years as, as a minor leaguer. And, and a lot of a lot of guys even laugh at me during spring training with the Astros. As I go over as soon as the minor league spring training starts, and I spend so much time over there because I really have a, a, an affinity for for what those guys are going through. So I want to know everything I can about them, just in case they get a chance to come over to the major league side and get into a, a spring training game, so I can offer a little bit of information about those guys because I know their moms and their dads might be listening. And I want to give them their just due because I know what a tough, tough, lonely road that can be for some of those guys. Yeah, and they're they're uh, they're trying to get the minor league guys a little bit more money this year. That's that was one of the big stories this offseason too, right? Yeah, uh, you know, and I think that's going to come to fruition. It sounds like uh, 
Toronto Blue Jays uh, kind of carried the torch. Uh, and I think they started things last year. And uh, I think some of the teams are, are catching on, coming on board. And it sounds like there's probably going to be a few less minor league teams to begin with. But uh, to, to give those guys a chance to, to reach their g- dreams. And, and some guys, you know, unfortunately probably have to quit their careers uh, maybe earlier because they can't afford to get some of their off seasons without uh, working a couple of jobs. I know I did that, worked a couple of jobs every off season just to get me through that next spring training. So shout out to the people at uh, Black IP in Channel View uh, for all those for all the waiting <laughs> tables and, and, and substitute teaching at, at North Shore. Oh, wow. I didn't you sub you substitute taught it. What, what were you teaching? Just everything? Yeah, everything. Yeah. North Shore, Crosby, Channel View, Baytown, all those all those towns on the east side. Wow. That's that's great. Well, uh, I, I got it. I got to tell you, I, I've got to get back to my reruns of uh, who's the boss. So I'm, I'm going to let you go, Steve. Uh, th- thanks for doing this. Y'all have fun, man. It's great talking to you guys always. And uh, stay safe. I, I know we're all we'll all get through this. So there'll be an end to this uh, at some point and uh, And hopefully we'll all be better for it. Absolutely. It was great talking to you, Sparky. You too. Take care, guys. All right. Thanks a lot. And before we say goodbye, I just want to remind any new listeners that if you're looking for something to listen to while you're stuck at home, check out our Throwback Thursdays. I'm putting up the best of our interviews over the last seven years of the podcast. Just had a tribute to Nolan Ryan with stories from Kevin Bass, Bob Aspermani, Kenny Han, Mickey Herskowitz, and Nolan biographer Rob Goldman. And before I close out the show, just a quick reminder that we're brought to you by Any Lab Test Now, the quick and easy way to get direct access lab testing when you're trying to manage your healthcare budget. 15 Houston area locations to choose from and their websites, www.anylabtestnow.com. You're listening to Houston Sports Talk. Don't forget to follow Houston Sports Talk on Facebook and Twitter. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, the Google Podcast app, or the Stitcher app. You can support us by giving us a five-star review on iTunes or by telling your friends about us. Spread the word, everybody. Thanks for listening. Hey.